Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Fieldy Miller, who is co-founder and CEO of CapTrust, one of the nation's largest independent registered investment advisors with over $400 billion in assets under advisement, more than 700 employees, and over 40 offices around the U.S. On today's episode, Fielding and I discuss the origin story of CapTrust, how he got started in the wealth side of the business and then transitioned into the corporate retirement space, and how they've been able to scale the business from 13 people to the size they are now. We talk about how technology like machine learning, blockchain, and AI will continue to make the participant experience more personalized over time, and how advisors will need to evolve their value propositions as these things commoditize certain things advisors currently do. We also discuss how COVID-19 has impacted plan sponsors and participants, as well as our own businesses. And we discuss the M&A landscape and what CapTrust has learned by doing more than 40 acquisitions over the years and their plans for using the recent investment from a private equity firm, which is the first time they've ever taken outside capital. And we cover how they think about developing talent and making people successful. And be sure to listen to the end where Fielding shares his single best piece of advice for making ERISA fiduciaries smarter, which is to start with the participant in mind and work backwards. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast with Fielding Miller from CapTrust. Fielding Miller, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. I'm really excited you're a guest today. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be here. Great to see you. So CapTrust is an absolute juggernaut. You guys have north of 700 employees. You advise on almost $400 billion in assets. You have 43 offices around the country. So could you maybe just take a minute or two for anybody who perhaps hasn't heard of CapTrust and just talk a little bit about the origin story as a founder of or as the founder of the firm? So I think everybody in our industry, kind of, there's a backstory, right? We all came from somewhere. And my start was actually in the, the broker. I started out as a rookie stockbroker back in and I uh, was doing well there for a couple of years and then just kind of got a little bit wary of the commission model. It just was not a great uh, fit, frankly, especially understand that 75% of a brokerage firm's revenue comes in the last week of the month. I'm sure that's not a coincidence. And so I was kind of early on to the, the fee-based approach. And, you know, back then, the same thing we have today, SMAs, you know, they had these RAP programs back then. And that was kind of how I started the concepts that led to eventually CapTrust. I was there about 10 years and then spun out with a team of 13 people and started CapTrust 22 years ago. And, you know, we started and just were excited, Harold, and starting your business and running it. And just kind of one brick at a time, we've built it. You know, one of the probably harder things that we did is we business, you know, retirement and wealth. We actually started in the wealth side and kind of migrated over to the other side. And as you know, that's not easy because you, you need a lot of services in the wealth management space that frankly, you can get off the shelf, really good you know, solutions, whether it be trading or reporting or CRM or whatever. 
On the institutional retirement side, there's nothing and you have to build it. I mean, there are a few things that are out there, but we were early enough, but we were early such that those things weren't even available yet. So that's complicated to be able to build both of those at the same time. And then you've got to integrate the two sides of the house through technology and other compliance and other things. So we spent a lot of time and energy those first years just kind of building out the platform. And, you know, today it's getting a lot easier. It took a long time to get to scale, frankly, but we're there and, you know, the flywheel's turning. That's awesome. Yeah, it is funny. I laugh and I've, I've said this on a prior podcast as well with another guest is on the wealth side, I'm jealous of all the tools and technologies that the wealth side has that the retirement side doesn't in a lot of cases right. and is really yeah. kind of behind the curve or behind the private client side from a, you know, a fintech perspective, which makes yes. it challenging. Yes. Yeah. You know, when, when we started, and you can remember this, there really wasn't a retirement advisor industry. There was no such thing. I mean, our biggest providers, and you spent the first 30 minutes conversation explaining what an advisor did. But those were the days that we started. There were no magazines. There were no conferences. There were no, there was really no community retirement advisors. We were all pioneering. As the saying goes, you know, the pioneers get the arrows in their back, right? You get too far out in front, it's, it's dangerous. But, uh, you know, we were very blessed in a lot of ways and were able to develop this retirement business over the years. And now, actually, we've pivoted back towards wealth. So roughly half of our revenue comes from either side today. Okay. And how has that mix changed over, call it, the past five to 10 years, would you say? Yeah. So, as I mentioned, we, we started in wealth and then we kind of had this pivot and for the next many, many years, the retirement business, 100% of our attention in terms of growing the business, you know, that's where we put all our energy and a lot of energy and time was spent building out that infrastructure we just talked about. And so for years and years, 70% of our revenue came from the retirement, 30% wealth. What was interesting is, is we were so focused on growing the retirement, the wealth remained 30%. So it was keeping, the growth rates were, were keeping up. And so then as we, you know, we rolled out our new 10-year plan in January of 07, you know, our goal was to go out and find wealth firms in the same markets we had retirement, you know, coverage and, and put those together. And so since we started that with more of an emphasis on M&A and, and buying in those markets, it's evened up. And, and wealth will soon surpass retirement for, for the main reason it's just a massive ocean of firms out there. And there aren't that many. Right. It seems like you've bought all the good retirement focused firms. There's like nobody, you know, there, there's, you know, there's only a few of us left around. Anymore. I know. You, you will always be welcome at Cat Trust. You, you <laughs> would look really good in Cat Trust Blue. <laughs> People tell me I have a great face for radio. Yeah, I'm no. not sure I look good. Yeah, I look I good at anything. Comments. But I, I, you know, I, I think what you guys have built is just it is incredible. And, and, you know, my co-founder, Pat Collins, and I, we had a chance to, to come down. You guys were really gracious. I think in 2012, invited us down. We had a chance to meet with you. And one of the things I really appreciated about you and, and you know, Rick Schaff and the entire team was just a real open, openness to kind of share some of the learnings that you guys had had. And, and even back then, what we had seen was it was incredible what you guys had built just culture-wise and like you said, with kind of the systems and and starting to achieve scale. I guess one question I have, and so thank you for that with always being generous oh, yeah. to us. But what, you know, it's interesting. 
especially 20 years ago, you don't really see many wealth firms that like you see them focusing on wealth. Like what was it that kind of gave you the vision or pivoting into this this market that didn't really exist at that point in time? What was the light bulb moment or the watershed moment where you said, hey, that's the, the direction we need to pursue? Yeah, so great question. I think about this quite a bit. I get the question quite often. And so, you know, we're, I got really fired up on the, the fee-based approach and, and how that would be so much better for clients. And so this was the 90s and, you know, the stock market was going 20% a year, year over year over year. And so wealth, man, wealth clients didn't really grasp, grasp how unique this was and important to be a fiduciary and all of that because it, what do they care? It's going up 20%. Fiduciary thing doesn't really matter to me. But where we got traction was with plan sponsors. And so that kind of an aha moment is, wait a minute, we're, we're focused on the wrong market. And so we started poking around there and, one of the things that I learned is that there was this massive profit sharing plan of $250,000. And I'm not talking about the assets, right? Back then, that was a reasonable amount of money. And so I got in there and, you know, they had some issues and, you know, with plan design and other things, which I had to study up on really quickly and ultimately was able to create a solution for them that didn't have anything to do with investing the money. But I got the money. You know, it came along. And that was a moment where I said, wait a minute. You know, we don't really have a differentiated investment offering at the small, it's Merrill Lynch or whoever else. But if we can solve plan sponsor problems, you know, holistically, we're going to end up with the assets. And sure enough, that was exactly what happened. And so the retirement clearly understood the fiduciary aspects. And they were clearly in need of help with the non-investment you know, ancillary type things. So that kind of clicked. And then we got, and that originally it was kind of pension and profit sharing. And then obviously the 401k industry started to swell. And what we found out there is that the real magic ingredient was participant enrollment, not advice, not wellness, good old fashioned enrollment. And that's a muscle play. That's blue collar, get up, lace them up. You know, you're on the third shift of a textile company, you know, talking to a mother, a single mother of three and trying to get them to put money in a, an account for their ultimate retirement. You know, that could be in the middle of the night in a third shift. And then, you know, we're at daybreak standing on the back of a truck down in eastern North Carolina, enrolling construction workers as the sun's coming up. Uh, we had an incident where uh, one of my partners was giving a presentation and out of the sky comes a sausage biscuit, hits him right in the chest. Actually, what happened, the, the, the guy didn't tell us, but the people that had the plan before us screwed up their statements and it looked like they had taken all their money. So the employer was getting hand stealing the money. And of course he didn't. And, you know, he answered all this, but this guy in the back didn't quite get the memo and he heaves a sausage biscuit. So, so it was hard work, but it, and nobody was willing to do it. You know, the nineties, all the brokers and advisors were making a ton of money. And so we really work there, and, um, and to this day, that helps us, knowing how to engage with participants and, you know, all walks of life from the cash register to the C-suite, and it's a big part of our business today. That's great. So, you know, how have you seen, so it, it, it kind of the early days in enrollment, what would you say are kind of the biggest changes, and so to really 
question is, is where have we come from and kind of where are we going? So what do you feel like the biggest changes have been over, let's say, the last five to 10 years, really in the, you know, the retirement ERISA world, especially for advisors, being the advisory firm that you guys are? And where do you think, you know, advisors need to go to compete over the next five to 10 years? Well, I, I would say society, the societal issue is, is that we've clearly gone to a do-it-yourself approach. You know, even when 401ks were coming along, they, they were the primary savings instrument. You know, you still have pensions and Social Security and things like that. But as we all know, it's evolved into the savings vehicle, which requires self-engagement, making investment decisions, things like that. Well, that's a that's a seismic shift if you think about it. And as we all know, the average individual is not going to invest money well. They're not going to make good decisions, so they need help. And so that's why, you know, we've, once again, just feel like engaging with these different ways, helping them plan and save and invest for retirement is important. And, you know, employers are starting to see that it's really good financial, it's very good financially to get these participants help because they're going to wake up one day and have a bunch of 70-year-olds walking around with very expensive benefits that can't afford to retire. So if you just look at it financially, it makes sense to invest in this process now and help their, their people along. So I, I think that is only going to get more important, you know, because you've got all these baby boomers headed towards retirement, underfunded, not prepared. That's going to build up. We'll wake up one day and there will be a retirement crisis. It's there. We, we know that it's coming. And so that participant engagement has been super important. And I just think it's going to grow in importance over time. And you mentioned competing in the future. Well, there's who are we going to be competing against and what are we going to be competing for? And there's never been a five or 10 year period where all that didn't change quite a bit. So I would say, as we look forward, you know, we're going to have to deal with things like, you know, machine learning that, you know, the Netflix experience where there's this continuous data uh, processing that's dialing in a custom solution, advice solution for, for folks. You know, you've got all kinds of artificial intelligence that's going to take any kind of linear process down to nothing. So you better start thinking about how are you going to add value when some of the value proposition you have today is going to go away. It's kind of like the old asset allocation, right? You know, that was a big deal to do asset allocation and anybody can do it. It's no big deal. That was your value proposition. You didn't evolve your debt. And, you know, the, just if you're just focused on the investment side of the house, which most of us were for a long time, if you haven't evolved in, in offering more holistic services, you're dead. You know, and so how do you evolve, you know, with this changing environment? And I think we've got to be very aware of the pressures that are going on in the, the our vendor industry, custodians, you know, providers, things like that, asset managers. They're under a lot of pressure and they're not, you know, they're, they're going to look for ways to disintermediate us because, you know, it's a very consistent revenue stream. Furthermore, if you think about the risks they face, you know, blockchain is going to be a big, that has the potential to disrupt them or, or perhaps even the opposite, make them a lot better. Anybody that's in kind of the processing business, and I think about custody and you know, plan providers, that's going to create a new day. 
And, and what are they going to do with that? Are they going to, like, once again, look for other sources of revenue? Or are they going to invest in it, embrace it? We don't know. So th- there's just a lot of things that we're going to have to do in the future. You know, the, the robo solutions weren't any good. They're going to get better. You know, generation two, three, four. I think those types of things are going to be supportive of distribution as opposed to trying to disintermediate us, but we don't know. There's always the risk of uh, big tech coming in in various ways. You know, there's increased compliance costs. There's increased risk. You got lower investment returns expect. There's there's just a lot of things that you're going to have to get right in the future to be competitive. And our stance, Josh, is we have reinvested half of our profits every year back in the business for a long, long time. So we're always trying to innovate and, and come up with new ideas. Some of them are terrible. Some of them are really good. And we have this, what we call Skunk Works team. That that's what we do. We sit down and we talk through ideas that could be transformative to the business or the industry. And, and we have the application development team in there. We've got marketing. We've got project manager, myself. We've got advisor reps, you know, just vetting ideas and, and trying to see how are we going to position ourselves with this new age. So, you know, I think there's a lot of change coming, but I don't think there's anything that's insurmountable, frankly. But, you know, you, you have to have your eye pretty far down the road. Right. You know, you mentioned just about providers and some of the trends that are taking place there. You saw recently Empower buying personal capital and kind of this battle for, you know, years ago when there was you know, when, when a lot of these record keepers could rely on kind of asset management revenue yeah, that yeah. a lot of that has evaporated yeah. and this kind of battle for, I think you have two things really kind of affecting the industry, right? There's kind of that competitive pressure. And I'd be really interested in terms of when you talk about the participant engagement and the experience and advice, you know, who, who do you think is best positioned to deliver that? And, you know, how, how, how do, you know, advisors and record keepers kind of work together on that. So you've got, you've got, you know, that piece, but then you also have consolidation. And it seems like in, like in lots of other industries, you know, you've got in the, the, the drive for scale, we've got fewer vendors to work with. And it looks like that landscape is continuing to consolidate. So what kind of pressures do you think that puts on plan sponsors and advisors in general when there are fewer dates to the dance, if you will. we got a long way to go. I mean, I think last count, we deal with probably 92 different record keepers and providers. So we wish they would consolidate a lot faster because the vast majority of our <laughs> clients are with 10 to 12. So, uh, but consolidation is the kind of thing that's, Everybody predicts it's going to be very different in five years. It never happens in five years. It always takes a lot longer. And that industry is, is, as we all know, has been consolidating. But I think as related to the customer, I think it's a good thing. Other than the fact that a lot of transitions, you know, if they're already with one of the winners, I think it's a good thing because with the scale they get, they can drive costs down and be more competitive, bring more service. That's necessarily bad. Um, I think in terms of who's best positioned, now, were you talking about to deliver participant advice or the record keepers themselves? Correct. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit self-serving, but I think we are. (laughs) And, And really what I mean by that is the RIA, the independent advisor that can act in a 
fiduciary capacity, that's the right model. You've got history on your side here. And whoever can deliver that in a scaled way is going to win the day. So, you know, as I said, we've been reinvesting in the business for a long time. We put more money in that area of our business than anything the last five years because we believe in this, this thesis. And, you know, here's, here's a great example of why I think our position at the table Sure. You know, we have a pretty substantial book of clients in the higher education space, 403B space. And as you know, these, all of these 403B plans, and they, they, they started out with all these multiple providers. That was the model. Just let anybody in and let people pick. Well, that's a disaster, right? So let's just say we help them get it through. And, you know, the usual suspects. Well, who is going to provide objective advice? who has access to two or three platforms. Well, it isn't going to be the providers. It's going to be somebody independent that can sit down with them and show them the, the pros and cons and how to put things together. So that's going to be very valuable in that particular segment. And I think it's going to be valuable elsewhere. And I just think, you know, being a, an RIA, you know, having a specialization in participant engagement, you know, investing ahead and, and having the capital and resources to serve them is that's the winner, in my view. And, you know, the reason I started out with, I think we're at the best position is I do think we're in terms of that service offering and investment, and we're committed to investing heavily going forward. So. And so what, so over the past five years, you said you've, that's kind of that participant experience, that engagement experience has been where you've invested most heavily what does that look like? What have some of those investments led to? What do you feel like the kind of what's the cap trust kind of participant experience? What are kind of the key pillars and, and principles behind, you know, what you guys believe about the participant experience? Meet them where they are. Right. And that means a lot of different things. Meeting with people, be sure you're communicating with them what they need to learn about the things they really need to be focused on. We have, we've developed a kind of a multi-tiered offering where we have an advice desk, 20 plus people. We have field retirement counselors that go out around the country. They're in various locations and time zones. We developed a tablet technology, call it Blueprint, where essentially instead of doing one-on-one meetings, you can do maybe one-on-three or one-on-five. Everybody has a tablet and you walk them through Here's how to enter your information. We already have your plan information loaded, you know, the plan features, the investments. This is about getting your outside assets and getting everything in sync. And so you can actually do this and you know, tell them how to put it in. And ultimately, you know, you kind of go one-on-one to make sure it's right. And at the end of that, they're going to get two things. One, they're going to get this financial plan that will be emailed to them that tells them, you know, where the gaps are and what we're recommending doing. And number two, they make the changes on the spot. They have to come to the meeting with the password. And because as you, as you well know, if they don't do it, then the odds or the percentages of people that will make the change go down dramatically. So we push that issue. It's just good, you know, behavioral finance concepts there. And then we have, you know, webinars, seminars, newsletter, about anything you can think of, you know, dedicated website. We've been doing a lot of videos that have been, Super impactful. But Josh, if you add all that up, is meet them where they are. You know, if you're talking to someone on the cash register, that's one engagement. If you're talking to someone, that's another engagement. 
And we do have an array of services that are designed for the suite, the C-suite that are different, you know, more advanced because their situations are more complicated. And, you know, we're continuing to build that out. That's great. That's great. It sounds like in a lot of ways, kind of the playbook from what a lot of the record keepers did back in the day in terms of, yeah, yeah. you know, call centers, but also retirement counselors kind of going out and, and still that. Well, how do you think, how do you think COVID-19 and, and we, you know, we've been stuck for six months or whatever in this kind of virtual world. How, how do you think that's going to, or how have you seen that change the participant engagement experience over the past six months? Have you seen any differences or, and how do you think that will evolve coming out of this? Is it going to be different? Is it going to go back to the way that it was? Well, I, I think the world's different. It's going to be different. I mean, this has been a bizarre year. I mean, it's going to be different in a lot of, a lot of ways. You know, our, our philosophy, Josh, is if you already have a relationship, this virtual interaction is fine. If you don't have a relationship, it would be very difficult to start one. So I think it'll be a while before you're going to like start relationships virtually. We get a lot of questions from our colleagues about, you know, work from home going forward and things like that. And my answer is this, that's not a new request, by the way. But now they think they've got a new answer. Right. Uh, our view is that, listen, we're a client service oriented business and you can't do that from home. You can't collaborate from home. You know, if you're working beside someone and they're jammed up on really hard stuff and you're finished, you know, you can look over there and say, hey, let me help you. Well, you can't do that if you're two silos, you're two different places. So I think you collaboration. I think it's less efficient. You know, there's, there's pros and cons to it. But I, I would say we all were incredibly productive for maybe March, April, May in there. A little bit of adrenaline rush. And you know, we got it done. But I get the sense that it's starting to fade. You know, people, they're not reaching across to ask to help somebody. They're probably going to walk the dog or whatever. Now, what in our view is, is that we're going to offer a lot more flexibility to work from home. If you need to work from home, fine. You know, if you got, you know, kids at home or someone's sick or, or whatever, you got to meet the cable person. We get it. You know, we can work from home if, if you clear it, but it's not going to be standard. You get to work from home on Fridays or something like that, even though that's, what everybody wants. It's just that you know, the dress code's another one. Everybody wants to relax the dress code. So you know what? The work hours, the location, the dress code was here when you came to work, <laughs> when you wanted a job. So, you know, it just doesn't necessarily change overnight. And I know a lot of firms see it differently. That's just my take on it. Yeah, we, I think we've experienced a lot of the, the similar things in conversations you know, it's interesting. We we just over the years in seeing a lot of plant sponsors historically have placed a high value, I think, in, you know, come into the break room, come into the work room, come on site, meet with our people on site. We had started to see that change and evolve where, you know, rolling out some things where uh, participants could engage virtually, whether that's through a Zoom meeting or a Teams call or, you know, a 1-800 number or whatever that might look like. How have you guys found kind of plan sponsors? Are, are you finding that they still really highly value meet us, meet our people where they are kind of on site? Have they been more open to that virtual engagement? Like, hey, as long as you have resources, you know, our people can choose to meet with you the way that they want to. Obviously, going out on site it's expensive and it's time intensive. 
how have you seen that evolve and and how have you guys are you seeing more of a trend to virtual engagement with participants or still much more heavy of hey we want you to come out on site or certainly if we get back to normal we want you to come back and be on site with our people it's all over the board you know some some clients like the digital i mean the virtual aspects where they're dealing with the advice desk and getting all the benefits of you know the webinars and that sort of stuff some want to have people there. And, you know, I think the more paternalistic clients like the boots on the ground. But our view is, is that, you know, here's a menu of things. Let's figure out what it is you're trying to solve for. And it could be, it was typically some combination. Like I need some people spending some time at this location until we get them up and running. And then we're going to go over here and then we'll be done for a while. And then we're going to we'll acquire another company. And so it's, it's kind of a custom approach just depending on what they're, what they're trying to solve for. We've been adding retirement counselors in the field over years. I think we're, gosh, it's over probably around 25-ish, somewhere in there. And you know, five years ago, we might add six. So it's growing. Right. And it's not necessarily the white-collar businesses that want to meet with somebody. It's, it's all over the board that you know, they want. Right. How are you seeing, so we talked a lot about wellness and participant experience and what that looks like. How do you see or how do you think conversations with plan sponsors? And and one of the great points I think you brought up was just, you know, things that are new and innovative and a differentiator now, five years from now, are going to be commodities, you know, asset allocation advice, you know, back in the day, having an investment policy statement and having due diligence criteria, that was a differentiator. Nowadays, I mean, that is a you can outsource that for two basis points. I mean, that is a, that's not a differentiator. How are you seeing at CapTrust, how are you seeing conversations with retirement plan committees and plan fiduciaries? How are those evolving? And, you know, if you were a, you know, retirement plan committee member, you know, what, what do you, what do you think they should be thinking about, you know, moving forward? What types of conversations should they be having? What, what should they be keeping their eye on in order to really stay kind of at the forefront of, you know, how retirement programs are evolving. Yeah, so this won't be unique just to CapTrust, kind of the way we think about it. And that is, you know, there's, we call it kind of the five pillars in which a sponsor needs to have all of these kind of covered to be successful. And of the five, you know, this year it's, well, basically their, their, their plan design, it's the fiduciary aspects, it's the investment aspects, it's the, the vendor management, and then it's the participant engagement, right? So that's kind of the five bodies of work. Well, in any given year, you know, it's like the old uh, whack-a-mole. Remember whack-a-mole? Your kids ever play that? You know, you know what I'm talking about? They did. The yep. pops up, and you whack it, and then another one right. pops up. And that, that's kind of And so I think you have to, you know, really get the plan sponsor to understand that it's not just solving your problem today. It's, it's thinking ahead and getting out in front of things that could happen tomorrow and tightening it all down. So if, if you're in there competing on you know, funds and fees and fiduciary alone, that runs its course. You're going to get the fees negotiated down. You can get the investment menu tight, the fiduciary process tight. You know, that, you don't want that just to be your value process. So, you know, one of the things we've done, for example, on plan design which I think is pretty interesting is you have the benefit of having lots of plans that virtually cover every you know, slice of the market, you know, from small to large, jumbo, every record keeper, every size company and plan 
every industry, every geography. I mean, we've got data that I think is more valuable than record keeper data because it's not just one firm's way. So with that, you know, we have everybody's plan design information. So we can say, okay, you're in this industry. We have 21 other companies in that industry, and here's 10 that have the most in common with you. Here's how they're doing, and here's how you're doing. And let's talk through, you know, you get to see what your peers are doing, but also you get to dial in on, on which of these aspects are the most important for you. You can have a lot of really interesting conversations on plan design, and we're able to bring that information forward in a very efficient way. So, you know, that, that's an issue. And then you can go down the fiduciary process, and frankly, that's going to change as the politics change, legislation change. That's going to come and go. I mean, they're, they're goofing around now with the fiduciary you know, rule and all that again, and it could be more different than it was in the Obama administration, which, by the way, is better for us than the new administration in terms of our business. And then you go down the line, investments. You know, there was some discussion the other day that they're going to allow, well, they're, they're talking about allowing private investments into plan, mm-hmm. private equity, but not ESG funds. Now, that, how does that make sense? Uh, unless the hedge fund managers are big contributors. Right, right. It's funny how every year the private equity space is licking. Yeah, the private equity space is licking their chops right now. Yeah, yeah, but it, it can't with happen. Access to all the potential the way it's, capital. Yeah. So if you end up with, you know, they were going to have different definitions of fiduciary. You think a client is going to figure that out? You know, it's so it's you know it's so nuanced that they're just going to glaze over and well, they're a fiduciary, you're a fiduciary. So what's the difference? So really hard to differentiate there. But, you know, to your question of how do you differentiate in the future, you got to lock all these things down, you know, these five areas, and you have to continue to innovate because the issues are going to change and what they're trying to solve for is going to change. So you've got to continue down the path of enhancing those services. I think that's great. I'm, I'm in complete agreement. And my new book, The Fiduciary Formula, Six Essential Elements to Create the Perfect Corporate Retirement Plan, of which you uh, provide a little blurb in the front, which, 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 which I appreciate. The same type of thing is, you know, those are the six areas. And I like that whack-a-mole analogy is that, you know, I think the key is knowing what's important to clients. And, you know, you talked about interesting conversations. One of my mentors says that, you know, he or she who controls the metaphor controls the conversations. It sounds like that's what you're saying in a lot of ways is being connected with clients and plant sponsors and and on one hand, understanding where things are changing out in the marketplace, but being able to kind of translate that and help clients understand and identify what's most important to them right now, but also guiding them so that they can, you know, be ready to address those things down the road. You guys have have had tremendous organic growth. I think you guys have grown something like compound, like 15 or 20% a year annually since inception, which, you know, when you're small is really easy, but once that denominator starts to get, you know, big, it, it, it's hard to grow. Part of what you've done is is acquisitions over the years. And obviously you started, I think, in, and we alluded to this earlier, you started creating a culture and a, you know, and an engine and a platform and an experience to really attract high quality retirement plan advisors. And you've opened that aperture and, and you mentioned there's a lot more wealth focused firms than there are retirement firms. And so what are some of the things that you, how many acquisitions have you guys done ballpark, you know, uh, since inception? Well, if you count lift outs and things like that, it's 
low 40s. But I would okay. say acquisition of freestanding firms is probably closer to thir- low 30s. You know, on the you're right about there being fewer acquisition opportunities in retirement, but our success in retirement has mostly come from hiring, training, new advisors, and building an organic practice. Actually, you know, the, the M&A gets the headlines, but the thing that we're the most proud of internally is our ability to do, develop talent and help them be successful. I, that was one of the questions I was going to ask, actually, was just, would you say that's the most rewarding thing that you've experienced or what is the most rewarding thing when you look back on Cap Trust and, and one, did you, did you have any idea 20 years ago, late 90s, that, that Cap Trust would look today like it looks? Did you anticipate that? I would love that to say that I had this, you know, this epiphany, this vision, and had this all planned out. But it's it's very incremental. You know, we were trying to make a living, and <laughs> we're trying to, you know, grow a little bit. And we would hire and train an advisor, and when they got up, we would hire and train another one. You would kind of bootstrap their way along. And then, probably the most aggressive thing that we did is back in 2006, I laid out a 10-year plan, which is a lot of things we've already talked about. But one of them was I put a revenue target on it. And we were at about 14 million in revenue. I said, guys, in 10 years, I want to be at 100 million in revenue. And that's a big goal. That's like 7X, right? Close to it. Yeah. And I got a lot of eye rolls, but you know, we did it. And the way we did it was through attracting talent and, and kind of this one brick at a time. So, you know, you can't really see out 10 years. Well, I certainly can't. But what we can do is say, listen, if we're going to, Deciding kind of the revenue number helps you make decisions today. For example, if, you know, if you're investing in technology, well, a real simple example, if you're going to buy a phone system, right? You know, we've all done this. We bought a phone system. We had to buy another phone system as you grow. Well, the next phone system you buy ought to be able to handle, you know, a thousand employees, not a hundred. So it gives you clarity on, you know, if you know how tall you want the building to be, you need to, that tells you how big to build the foundation and how sturdy. And so it gives you a lot of clarity on decision-making. So that was helpful to have that kind of that North Star. It was only one of 10 goals, but it was helpful. And then, you know, three to five years is a little bit easier to predict. And so it's, it's kind of been in those segments that will add up to 10-year plans. You know, we just did our other one back in 17 versus 17. So, no, I didn't think this is where it would be 20 years ago, but I did five years ago, right? And I... We obviously have big expectations for the next five years and so on. But at the same time, a lot of the core principles and strategies and philosophies are exactly the same. Exactly the same. Now, running lots of offices and lots of employees, that we had to create new muscles for that. I mean, I'm, we started from scratch. So what do I know about running a, a larger company? Well, more than I did five years ago. Yeah, just have to learn it. Right. And so that's a great, that's a great lead in. What would you, when you look back, you've obviously done a lot of things right. What are some of the mistakes you made? If you had to look back, what were some of the mistakes you've made and, and what do you wish you could, you know, take a mulligan or a gimme on? Oh, you know, one that sticks out, you know, as we were growing and having growing pains, probably this is probably goes back 14, 15 years ago. I, I was burned out. It was really burned out. And I decided to restructure and I hired a guy to come in and be chief operating officer. And 
you know, gave him a lot of latitude to do things, he had great management experience. He was the wrong guy. And it took me, so I did several things wrong. I, I made a big decision when I was tired. Because I was tired, I didn't do the due diligence I should have. And then it took me too long to figure out the problem. And then it took me too long to fix the problem. <laughs> so I learned a lot of lessons in one mistake. And, and, and since then, you know, we've obviously gotten through that. You learn great things. He made lots of contributions, but just wasn't the right fit for us. The next time around, when it came time to, to hire a COO, was a lot more thoughtful and I ended up getting a rock star. And this guy is so valuable. He's a president now, Ben Goldstein. And he does, he's done so much to make us a successful company. I just can't even quantify it. So that, that, that's what was, you know, you make, if you're, if you're growing and taking risk, like we all do, you're going to make mistakes, but hopefully small, we learn and we move on. Yeah. It's funny. I've got four kids and I always tell them that, you know, I want them to, I want them to fail because if they're failing, it means they're taking risks. I just want them to fail forward and fail fast, you know, and not (laughs) be afraid, not be afraid to fail. (laughs) Right. They get up. Exactly. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, like, so you, you got burned out. What, 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 what drove that? Where was, where was that kind of coming from? I don't know. Classic stuff. Driving too hard. No balance in your life. Your kids. Stress. I don't know. It's one time in my life I've felt that way. So I'm not exactly sure. I just think <laughs> overwhelmed and wasn't mature enough to understand it or admit it. You know, just didn't have the ability to be introspective. At least I didn't until I got a little bit older. So I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's overwhelming. I mean, you just feel it's like you're, you know, you're in quicksand. You can't seem to move like you want to move. And yeah. it's tough. Hopefully that never, that never happens yeah. again. Right. No, I honestly, I mean, I've, I've, I feel like I went through a period recently that I've started to kind of merge from. And part of it's been tied to a bit of a role change with me as well. But, you know, it, it, the complexities, and obviously we're 25 people, so we're a lot smaller than you are. But 25 people is a lot different and a lot bigger than 15 people was. And it's a lot different than five people was. And, and, you know, it, it, it kind of the, the changing of roles over time, you try to, you know, it's, it just, the, the pressure, it gets hard and it gets hard to, to, as that evolves. So, hey, Josh, uh, you, you know, one of the yeah, things I admire, yeah, I'm sorry, you, I'm sorry. So you asked me about the most rewarding part. I'm not sure I answered. Yeah. You know, I, in retrospect, the, the most rewarding I've experienced or witnessed is the impact of the firm. And the positive impact that we've made. And I think we've made a great impact on our colleagues. I know we've done it with our clients. We're very engaged in the community. You know, we're, we're trying to leave a mark. And, you know, that starts out as a philosophy and a preference. And then it starts to gather steam. And the most rewarding thing is, is to know that it's, it's very much grassroots. It's not a top-down focus that, especially the, the younger folks coming in, the millennials, they're very impact-oriented. And so just kind of create a life of its own and a minimum of its own has been super rewarding to me. And, and it gets more rewarding as I get older. How have you seen your role change over the years? What are you doing different? Like, what are you, what are you focusing on now that, that you didn't focus on five years ago or 10 years ago? You know, one of the benefits of scale is you can afford more talent, better talent to do various things. And so, you know, you get elevated out of 
Like I don't spend any time anymore on the financial aspect or the legal aspect, unless there's you know, <laughs> problem. I've got people that are way better. That's a that's a that's a that's a good that's a good thing. You're not uh, yeah. focused on that. Well, I, I got asked this question the other day, very similar. Well, one of the things you have to understand is is when you as you go up the ladder, the complexity of problems you deal with goes way up. And here's an example. So you kind of got an entry level person that has something they don't know what to do with. They go to their manager. If the manager doesn't know how to solve it, they go to their manager and, their ma- and it keeps going up. And by the time it lands on my desk, there is no easy answer. It's hard. It's kind of a conundrum. And so, you know, you spend a lot of time complicated things or problems to solve, but my personality, that's really works well. And I've got a huge ADD, you know, I like lots of things that are to, to dig into and, problems to solve. So there's enough variety there that it really works well with my personality. And so there's a lot of that, but every time you get a problem, a complicated problem, usually there's an opportunity somewhere in the neighborhood. And so I think I'm pretty good at kind of figuring out how do we flip this around? And if we're dealing with this, does it mean, does it mean, does it mean that our competitors are dealing with something similar? And if they're dealing with it, I think we're in a better position to solve for it than someone that maybe hasn't gotten a scale. So that's why it's, you know, it's stimulating for me to take something that's really complicated and hard to deal with and try to, you know, try to turn it into something possible. Right. Right. You guys recently took, I think for the first time ever outside capital, I think it was uh, GTCR as a private equity partner. I think they bought like a 25% stake in yeah. cap trust. That's a big deal. Never taking outside capital for 20 plus years yeah. and then, and doing yeah. that. And I'm sure, you know, I, I know the amount of calls that, that, that I get every month from private equity firms wanting to, you know, invest in our company. I can only imagine how many calls you and your team got, but what really drove the decision to, to move forward in that and, and why now? And, you know, what, what are you guys doing with kind of that, that, uh, how are you investing those dollars moving forward? Yeah. To the extent uh, that you feel question. like you can, you can share. Yeah, listen, uh, as you have already mentioned, and I think most people that know me would agree, uh, I'm very transparent about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because the more people that know that, that think the same way, are going to be drawn to us and maybe we're go- are going to want to have a conversation. And those that don't, you know, we just disagree. It's like that. So we, we took, so we grew, we grew the business by reinvesting our, our half our profits for years. And, and we took on a little bit of bank debt, but I had a little experience right out of college where I about went bankrupt at age 25 because I took too much leverage in the real estate market. So I've always been averse to debt and didn't really think this business was, it was necessary to have a lot, but you know, the acquisition and whatnot, you know, we needed more capital. So we had to stretch those guidelines and I got to two times. And I just started feeling like I, I don't want to leverage this business. And so we're going to have to come up with capital another way. So we, we looked at a lot of different things. And, you know, I was very much against private equity in the traditional sense, because typically they're going to buy in and, you know, typically a majority and then three or five years, another one, another one. Another. So there's no benefit to clients or, or employees. So we said, look, we will take a minority investor to bring us capital. They have no path to majority and they have to hold for at least seven years. So that thins the herd out pretty quick. But there's a lot of people that want to be in this industry right now and we're willing to take a minority stake 
And so from that point, it was, okay, we're, we're going to, under these circumstances, we would like to have an investor. So the way we differentiated one firm from the other was they all wanted to give you money. And the valuations were really strong. But which one could offer us strategic value in addition to the money? I mean, how, how can you help us grow and evolve and, and build the business as a partner? And that's why we land on GTCR. They've got a real history of being able to do that. And sure enough, you know, we're a few months in and they've helped us in a number of ways. So that, that's been very positive and we're happy with the decision. Now, we started this process probably nine months ago. It just happened to land kind of during COVID, which was a great time because there's a lot of people on their heels and, you know, have issues. I think it's going to accelerate the M&A pipeline. It already has. So it's a good time. And, you know, your question about how are we going to use it? Well, it's primarily to, to fund the, the growth. So you think it's a good time coming out of, you know, it's interesting with, with all the consolidation in the industry and obviously the, mul- the multiples have been, you know, really healthy for RIAs and advisory firms. It seems like it had, so, so your thesis is that you think that's going to continue with COVID now and, and people, you know, firms wanting to essentially take some chips off the table. It seemed like it was very much a, a seller's market prior where, you know, there was a lot more risk being taken on by buyers and a lot less by, by sellers. I, I suspect that that risk relationship or ratio is probably going to shift back to be a little bit, you know, to be a little bit more fair and and split between buyers and sellers. Do you think multiples will stay the way that they are? Do you think, you know, those are going to recede? What what do you think the state of the M&A market is going to look like over the next three to five years for RIAs? Well, as it relates to multiples, I think there's going to be a bigger and bigger divide between the companies that scale and those that are not. So I think the larger firms, the multiples are going to hold. I think the smaller firms are going to shrink. And what was the other part of your question? Just about risk sharing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's a buyer uh, or seller. Buyer and seller. Yeah, yeah. It's going to continue to be a seller's market for a while. I think, you know, just to play out some of this, because you have, as you said, a lot of private equity firms and others trying to buy their way in the business. You can't just start in the business. you got to buy your way in. And so that's going to multiples up for a little while. But if you're going to buy your way into the business, you're going to buy one of the better businesses that are at scale or close to scale. And there aren't many. I mean, there's less than you know, two hands to count on. It's going to run its course, right? And, and whoever's in is going to be in and others can't get in. And so then it's, I think it's going to settle down quite a bit. Evaluation. Right. The, yeah. the, the buyer seller. Well, right. Well, as we wrap, and and I've had this has been a lot of fun. You know, this the whole purpose of this podcast is to make ERISA fiduciary smarter. And so, what would be, given how long you've been in this industry and the incredible things that that you and your team have achieved, what would be your single best piece of advice to make ERISA fiduciary smarter? So, thinking about it, let's say from the perspective of a, you know, of a plan sponsor. Yeah, our, our philosophy has always been, as you're thinking through decisions as a plan sponsor or strategies, you have to start from with the participant and work backwards every single time. If you do that, you're not going to get in trouble as a fiduciary. You are going to have your dollars and your time and attention focused on the right things because that's, that's, that's what we're here to do. You know, we're not here to be fiduciary, you know, follow fiduciary process. That's just what's necessary to get you know, treated in the right way. So if, if plan sponsor 
whatever they're solving for, which, whichever, you know, whack-a-mole they're, they're about to, to hit, if they keep that as their North Star, always going to make good decisions and, and for the right reasons. If it's just, we know we're going to cut costs on the plan because we can save this money, well, wait a minute. What are your participants going to give up by you doing that? And is that going to create a bigger long-term problem? Well, then they may pause and say, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we ought to rethink this. You know, we're going to be penny-wise and pound-foolish if we're not careful. I think that is great advice. You know, so I, we'll, we'll publish the show notes after this, but where, for people who want to learn more about you, connect with you, learn more about Tap Trust, connect with your people, where can they find you? The easiest What's the best way for people to connect with you? On the you? web. I mean, you know, at captrust.com. Anybody can call me if they want to anytime. I'm very open to having conversations. And, you know, I'm, it's like you. I've committed myself to this industry. It's what I've done virtually my whole career. I'm passionate about it. You know, as I've said, we're on the right side of history here. You know, RIA assets have now equal brokerage firm assets. That is an incredible statement. And that's only going to get better. And I want to be part of that kind of revolution. And I'm willing to help anybody that has the same interest and passion. Well, you have been an incredible, I think, leader within the industry and, and really have, I think, helped pave the way. And I know myself and, and lots of people in the industry appreciate that. I think what you guys are doing at CapTrust is, you know, it's exceptional for clients. I think one of the things I'm most impressed about everybody that I meet is you guys have a pretty incredible culture. I know that's not by accident. I think you guys have been very intentional about getting obviously talented people, but also getting them focused on all the wars in the the water rowing in the same direction. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and for your insights and, and wish you all the continued success out in the marketplace. Just take it easy on green spring advisors. When we come up against you guys, you know, have some, uh, got, have some pity whole, on us. We got a whole but, uh, chest thank of you. money here, Josh. We got a whole bunch of cash. So <laughs> we should talk. No, thank you. I, I, I want to wish you the best Absolutely. of luck on your book. That's, that's a big, thank you. I know that you're glad to have that done and I know it'll make a difference out there. So, so well done. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat this morning. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Fielding Miller from Cap Trust. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and it helped make you a smarter ERISA fiduciary. If you'd like more information or you'd like to connect and learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode, along with show notes, articles, free tools, and an online fiduciary training course. And make sure to sign up to receive each episode when it's available, as well as other exclusive content. Also, if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. And head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. Also, if you'd like an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. 
The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. And past performance is not indicative of future performance.